After an accident, minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. You need help, and you need it now. This is David vs. Goliath, brought to you by Dolman Law Group Accident Injury Lawyers, a boutique firm with a reputation for going head-to-head -head with the insurance company giants and putting people over profits. Welcome to another episode of the David and Goliath podcast. I'm attorney Matt Dolman from the Dolman Law Group here with my business partner, Stan Guype, and esteemed epidemiologist, Ann Bauer. So, Ann, we're really happy to have you on today. Um, our discussion is going to be uh, centered around the Tylenol autism, or I should call it the acetaminophen autism ADHD lawsuit right now that is pending in the Southern District of uh, New York in federal court. And this is part of a uh, multi-district litigation you penned um, several studies on this subject, so I want to go into um, your your breadth of knowledge regarding the association between a, the you know use of acetaminophen during pregnancy in utero exposure to acetaminophen and how that ties and in, links into uh, the later subsequent diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder and ADHD and other neurodevelopmental disorders. So to start off with, just tell us about the general association, the body of science that's out there. I think I'd like to start with talking about how we determine causality a little bit. Sure. The gold standard of evidence is a randomized controlled trial. This is what is used in pharmaceutical clinical trials. And what you, what is done is people are randomized to two groups. One will get the treatment, the other will get placebo. And this act of randomization minimizes bias. So that's the gold standard. And that's great for a brand new pharmaceutical coming on the market when the researchers believe that that treatment will be beneficial. In this case, our hypothesis is, as researchers, is that acetaminophen may be causing harm to the developing, when used during pregnancy, may be causing harm to the developing fetus. So it's unethical for us to do a randomized control trial. You cannot put people in a group and say, you're going to take acetaminophen and another group, we're going to give a placebo because I believe that that giving them that treatment could cause the child to have autism or ADHD or some neurodevelopmental complications. So in this case, you have to rely on observational data. So we have to watch what's actually happening out there. We cannot do an experiment like that. So when we rank the observational type studies, what is considered the best evidence is a cohort study. And so a cohort study, the way it's designed is we enroll pregnant women, particularly for acetaminophen, looking at acetaminophen and, and neurodevelopment. Women are enrolled at the beginning of their pregnancy and we continue to follow them and then the baby that's born until the time that they develop a neurodevelopmental complication or not. And we look at the women, we just observe the people we keep track of. Most of the studies relied on maternal self-report. And we'd ask, most of the studies asked the women at about each visit to the, to their OBGYN during their pregnancy, at least every, like every three months during their pregnancy, they asked them, did you take any medications? What medications did you take? How much in, in many cases? So one of the concerns people have is that people won't remember very well. 
we're asking in, in a, a relatively close time period to, to when the exposure is occurring. So we're asking about the exposure before the child develops autism or ADHD. A case control study, which is another type study, when we take the kids who already have this disease and then go ask what exposures they had. You know, so at, at when the child is five or eight years old, go ask, what did you take while you're pregnant? Well, they're going to have a hard time remembering. So are all the studies, so now there are over 30 studies that are cohort studies, the type where we followed the women during their pregnancy and then followed the children, that suggest that acetaminophen increases the risk of neurodevelopmental disorders when taken during pregnancy, of the neurodevelopmental disorders of the offspring. So more recent studies have, have improved methods and they found an even stronger signal. Some of these more recent studies have measured the amount of acetaminophen in the infant's cord blood, in the meconium or the mother's urine or the mother's plasma. And so we actually have measurements of the acetaminophen. And those we get even a stronger signal of, a, of an association between acetaminophen and these neurodevelopmental disorders. Primarily what's been investigated and found is ADHD, but also autism has been found in a number of studies. So I've seen 16 studies now that show a dose-dependent dose-response uh, relationship, meaning the greater the dose, the greater the higher level of acetaminophen that was either measured in the cord blood or that was reported in an observational study, the greater the rate of incidence of autism spectrum disorder in terms of diagnosis or ADHD. In fact, the science looks better actually for ADHD than it does for autism, but there's an association for both. And that's some of what we're going to discuss today. Stan and I are interested in is attacking the science because we're proponents of the science, but how is this going to play out in litigation? How's it going to play out when they, you know, the federal standard is uh, Daubert and when they eventually have the Daubert hearings in this case, what does the science look like as some of the critiques are based on the fact they're observational studies and the inherent biases that are related to observational studies and the, the lack of a control group, for instance, in the uh, Johns Hopkins study that came out in um, I it was 2019 that was published in JAMA Psychiatry. Yeah, let me explain something about that study. Sure. And any study. We have a number of research studies that suggest that acetaminophen is ubiquitous, ubiquitous within the population, meaning it apparently is in our groundwater. So everyone is going to have a very low level in their, in their blood or. So what you see in that Hopkins study is they were able to divide into three groups, but there is no unexposed group. I don't know that you're going to find a completely unexposed group anywhere. It's been around the world that they found that it's in the groundwater. So I personally don't think that's a valid criticism of the Hopkins study. They divided into tertiles of exposure and compared the lowest group of exposure to the highest group of exposure and the, and, and the middle group. I would still say there's that the, the very low level is a valid control group because of this situation. And let me back up and, and make sure I understand the different types of studies you're talking about, because Matt's looked into this a lot more, and I'm probably a little closer to a layman when it comes to some of this. When we're talking about your cohort studies, right? This is just people who show up to the doctors, you get them both at the beginning of their pregnancy, and they're reporting along the way what kind of drug intake, acetaminophen intake, and other stuff they've got during the pregnancy. After the person has the baby, then going back and looking and saying, all right, well, 
did this child have any ADAD, ADHD or autism? And then you're looking retroactively at the, the acetaminophen consumption based on self-reporting along the way, correct? That's correct. For a good portion of the studies, you stated it very nicely. Okay. So that's kind of where you're talking about those 30 studies that, that show that there was some sort of correlation, right? Correct. Now, correlation, you know, for the layman, like, doesn't necessarily mean causation, right? Because there could be something else in the pregnancy that's causing pregnant women to take acetaminophen. And it could be that underlying cause uh, that the reason they're taking acetaminophen could also have been the cause of the ADHD or acetaminophen or, or autism, correct? Right. Which, by the way, is the greatest critique of the, you know, the research out there is could the underlying conditions cause this? How does that dovetail with the cord blood studies? Does it seem like the core blood study starts to move us out of that just, hey, it's correlation to now we're looking at a higher concentration is, it equals a more likely uh, hood of the occurrence of the underlying condition. It's a better exposure assessment, right? And so that it's better to have an actual biomarker than to be asking the mother. Although you're not getting the full complement of exposure, you're only getting exposure for a short period of time by measuring cord blood because um, the half-life is, is fairly short for acetaminophen. You're only capturing a day's, you know, four hours to eight, eight hours worth of exposure with that. The best design study may be capturing both biomarkers as well as maternal report, if, but like a daily diary. But I do want to say all of those studies that were done, the researchers did try their best to control for potential confounders that they were aware of. So almost all of them, control for the reason the woman used used the acetaminophen. They controlled for things like age, and they controlled for um, socioeconomic indicators. Many tried to control for genetic confounding by using various methods, not, not all of them, but some of them. But I think the key is that all these studies from around the world pretty darn consistently come up with there's an increased, a signal suggesting there's increased risk, right? And I think that the ones with biomarkers do, are important. And I think that they are, it's harder to argue with the, with the biomarker studies. But again, they can still have, potentially have some of these confounders. And there's always concern about confounders that we don't, the researchers didn't even think about or don't know about. So the associations are modest, you know, so it is possible that, that other factors can explain these, these correlations. I would argue, though, that, one, that it's important to look at the animal studies because they also consistently find an increased risk of autism, like behaviors that are altered behaviors, and they've dissected the brains and found alterations in the areas of the brain where, that we think are associated with these disorders. So I think that's really important because an animal study is not subject to genetic confounding. The, the two groups, you know, they do a control group and a treatment group and they're randomized. The animal studies, so genetics aren't really a factor with those. And indicate the reason that indication for use can, can't really be confounding those findings. So I think it's important to look at the totality of the research. All right, I want to ask you a little more about that because that's something that to me 
it looks like we're able to do certain things with animal research that might not be necessarily ethical or po- you know possible to do with human research, obviously. Absolutely. So this this animal research, we can get the control group and the group that we're actually feeding the acetaminophen to at known rates, at known times, and known exposures, correct? Exactly. You can, can control everything. And then afterwards, you can... You can look at the brain. You can look at the placenta. You can't really do this and look at the fetus. You can't do these things with human studies, obviously. So what is it that animal studies have found, like in general? They seem to point to a specific time window of that we're exposed. Risk seems to, the, the human studies and the animal studies suggest that risk exists all through the pregnancy. However, they seem to pinpointed a period of greatest risk right around the time of birth. And that may be why these cord blood studies from Johns Hopkins found such strong associations. That may be the time of greatest risk, or it may be just the better measurement of exposure. But so they're they're finding changes to the hippocampus that are reflective of ADHD and autism. They're finding behavioral changes in these animals, similar repetitive behaviors, changes in their sociability. They're finding different type behaviors that look somewhat like what we're seeing in, in the humans. I mean, it's, it's not exactly translatable. But, you know, we can't say we gave a, a mouse autism exactly, but we can say, oh, these behaviors look very similar. They're, they're doing different, they're having different behavior when they're doing these. They have all these different tests. Can we say it impacts the fetal brain development though of an animal? Absolutely. In the animal studies, we're seeing behavior and neurodevelopmental changes. So we know that acetaminophen has a very short shelf life, or half-life, I should say, I apologize. My question is, and it's like the greatest critique of the, uh, the cohort study, at least the Johns Hopkins study, is does the acetaminophen level in the umbilical cord blood sample, does that represent acetaminophen use during pregnancy, though? I mean, because it's, again, at a very instant time, at the time of birth. So how do we actually translate or extrapolate that data to show what a pregnant woman used and what the real exposure was in utero to that baby um, throughout the uh, the tenor of pregnancy. And is it just during that exact time? Because women would obviously use painkillers more, right, preceding birth. It's certainly possible. There's some studies that suggest there's some accumulation, but majority of it is reflecting the exposure right before that baby was born in that day or so before. There's some studies that are, I was reading an animal study yesterday that says from prolonged use, it's accumulating more in the fetal brain than in the maternal brain. I don't know exactly if that's translatable to humans, but it looks like, you know, it it appears that prolonged use is what we should be most concerned about. I think the risks are relatively low if you look at taking it one time during pregnancy. We're talking about the people who are taking it for days, you know, are experiencing a situation where they're, they have to take the acetaminophen for days on end. So, because we know the underlying factors, such as the reason why women take Tylenol or acetaminophen while pregnant is fevers, pain, and fever especially, that is a cause in and of itself of uh, neurodevelopmental disorders, such as autism, ADHD. That is true. And so that's where the caution comes in that we do not want women to hear this information and then decide not to treat a fever. They need to speak to their physician in the case of a fever. However, that's not the, the, the major reason that women use acetaminophen during pregnancy. 
that's about 35% of fever and infection represents about 35% of use. The rest of it is headaches, backaches, girdle pain, you know, just discomfort and nuisance pain, some of it nuisance pain that they experience during pregnancy. So I think at this point, we don't have a great alternative and doctors may still need to recommend that women take acetaminophen for fever. However, I think there needs to be a serious discussion about, do you really need to be taking this for these other indications? Are there other ways to try and minimize your, your headache? I think we need to seek alternatives for that. So it's not the occasional exposure, it's the prolonged exposure, the use of it over and over again, especially in the later trimester. Is that correct? That where you believe the association strongest? That's where the research, what the research seems to suggest. Yes. It, it seems to be like a more judicious use of the product would probably be recommended. Hey, do we need to lower dosage? Do we use the minimum amount possible? Don't take four pills just because it hurts. Realize that there may be a risk factor associated with each time you take this drug. So take it as little as possible during pregnancy. Right. It's practical to say at this point, because there isn't another alternative. I'd like to see a better, safer alternative developed, but we're not there yet. And so that we could say, avoid this. And but at this point, I think we know enough to say people should be cautious. And I'm, I'm really thrilled that these lawsuits are happening just because it's going to get the word to women. Whether they believe it or not, they're going to think twice when they pick up that pill the next time, you know, these pregnant women are going to say, hmm, I remember hearing this. So, I mean, I'm very happy that the, you're helping educate. Yeah, my only worry is, though, at the same point, and we're championing the cause. I mean, we are representing a number of clients ourselves or a number of women who uh, subsequently had children that were born with a neurodevelopmental disorder that had um, that used acetaminophen during pregnancy. My worry is if the lawsuits fail, does that embolden the uh, the critics, the uh, individuals who think this is uh, nonsense. And further, where you know, what's the latest science? I mean, is there is there studies that are being done right now? And then when can we expect that the, and can, will, can we expect that the FDA is going to eventually take action? And when will the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists heed the warning and actually um, take a look at what, you know, if we look at the, I think it was 2021 when you uh, were one of 90 scientists, I think it was, was it 90 or 91 scientists? That 91. <laughs> Okay, that penned that consensus statement. Why is that not being heeded by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists? I know I asked a bunch of questions there. Yeah, the ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, did take a look at the research, and they were not ready to take a stand. They felt more research was required. The FDA reviewed all the evidence in 2015 and put out a statement, but at that point, there were like three studies. I hope that they will look at it more thoroughly again. I, I heard rumors that they looked at it, but they have not published anything to say that they've looked at it. Again, they would like more research is what they're saying. I know my colleague, David Christensen, he was writing to me about something else today. He said he has a number of studies along these lines supporting this hypothesis that are going to be published soon. His work is not cohort study. He's, he's in the realm of the animal models. As in published for the next year? Yes. Since our consensus statement came out, a meta-analysis came out from six European cohorts combined their data, and they found the association both to a prenatal exposure to acetaminophen and ADHD and autism. I looked at those. That, that covered 70,000 
pairs, right? Was that, am I correct in that? That's correct. I was just reading it the other day and I didn't realize that they only, they found a, about a 20% increased risk of ADHD and 30% of autism. I might have that switched, but only because of the, the nuance needed to be able to combine six data from six different collection methods. And they only looked at, did you take acetaminophen during pregnancy or did you not? It was a yes, no, which is a very weak exposure assessment if they still found a signal, right? So I think if we really measure, I just don't think that's a, a, a very accurate measurement, right? To say, because because what we're seeing is that if you took it just once, it's a big difference from taking it 30 times and in, in, sure. in your risk. So, so I thought it was really interesting that they still were able to find the association. So that, you know, and meta-analysis ranks at the top of the scientific evidence pyramid. So it's important that they found it, but that they found risk. I guess the concern, however, is that, you know, it's, it's still minimal risk that it's, it's not a strong enough signal that you that it isn't possible that it's that it can be explained by other factors that we were unable that they were unable to measure. What's the threshold of when do you get to a significant risk? Obviously, depends on who you ask, right? Twenty or thirty percent. I would gander closer to fifty percent increased risk would be more that you could buy. Oh, when I had a meeting up with the mother to baby organization about four years ago. They told me they wanted to see a relative risk of six before they would take any action on a medication. A relative risk of six, the only thing I think that's ever reached that threshold, very few things, the, uh, the cigarettes and lung cancer has, re has reached that threshold. The recent, uh, the recent Harvard study on MS and uh, it's linked to a virus, that, that reached that threshold, but it's that's a very difficult threshold. We do not see that often in research. Not to interrupt you, what does that mean, relative risk of six? Took acetaminophen are six times more likely to have autism or ADHD than someone who did not take acetaminophen. Okay, so when you say relative risk of six, that means it's multiplying your you know normal risk of acquiring Ex this problem exactly. by six times if you associate it. So a doubling of the risk, a tripling of the risk, a quadrupling of the risk isn't going to hit that threshold for the organization you're talking about. That is what they told me at that meeting. That's that's troubling. Right. Yeah. I mean, for instance, and I'm not to change the subject here in another gear, and I don't know if you follow this at all. So another area that we're uh, handling right now, or another lawsuit print that's, that's forthcoming is the risk of uh, uterine cancer and ovarian cancer from uh, hair straightening products for black women and brown women. So it's, it's, uh, it's Hispanic and, and black women are having, you know, forever. They wondered why do they have so just a high, dis, you know, disproportionately high rate as compared to white women of, uh, of ovarian cancer and uterine cancer. Well, it's explained by the fact they use these the chemicals that are in the, uh, and it's endo endocrine disrupting chemicals that create a two to one. It's a, it, it doubles the risk. Doubling the risk, isn't that, what do you think that's troubling? Yes. And, and, I think to me, the threshold has to be that it's high enough risk that you can't, that it can't easily be explained by other factors. So doubling the risk, it's very difficult to say that they didn't control for something that caused it to appear to be double the risk. And that's the importance of the Baker study on ADHD and the, which looked at merconium and the, the 
beauty of the G studies from Hopkins is that they found twofold and three, what is it, 3.6 for autism in the G study in the cord blood. Those relative risks or odds ratios, I forget what they use, but, but, but it's a measure of risk, are high enough that it's unlikely that that, that association can be explained by other factors, by confounding factors. And I want to get something else to you. When you're bringing this up, you're not saying that this is so dangerous it needs to be pulled off the market. Women shouldn't be able to use it. We're simply saying, look, if these risks are increased, let people know. Put a warning on there. Let women know that this may contribute to causing ADHD or autism so they can make an informed decision when deciding, hey, do I want to take a little more pain and a little less acetaminophen or not? And Stan, you hit on the head. I mean, that's that's the whole essence of this loss. It's a failure to warn these, you know, the g- generic manufacturers of uh, the, I'm sorry, the manufacturers of generic acetaminophen and the manufacturers of Tylenol, which is uh, a subsidiary of Johnson Johnson, should have warned pregnant women. They never had that warning there. Now, now I want to address something else, and this is probably a little selfish for Matt and I, but Matt, we do a lot of stuff on social media, okay, and it continually on social media we're getting attacked as this this is something oh, that Anne's attorneys aware. drug Anne's up. very much aware. She's come and, to my defense several listen, times. You see this. So you see what's happening is people are attacking this as though we created this or somehow we created these studies and are now going after this. I'd like you to ask, when did you start first noticing these studies coming out? So I'll tell you a little bit about my journey, okay? <laughs> so I was studying epidemiology and I we happened to have a conversation early at lunch one day and w- one woman was worried was pregnant and worried about her child having autism and I spent the afternoon looking in PubMed I just learned how to use it and I found these studies by Stephen Schultz his first study came out in 2008 his second study that's important is in 2011 and both of these are not high quality research but they were suggesting that acetaminophen might be a causal factor. And I thought his, his arguments were compelling enough that I kept digging. And every time I kept digging, I kept finding more, more supportive information. It's like, this did make sense. So my, I did an ecological study in 2013. And soon after that, the first good cohort study came out of Norway in 2013. So this has been around for a while, but it somehow hasn't gotten much traction. I've tried. I've been out there on social media trying to inform people. My mentor went to me after I published my study, more of a hypothesis study. Um, he said, you got to let the women know. Go down on social media. And I've been trying. So I think the problem you're having is that people think that you came up with this, that this is new information. People don't know. And people, when I see things on, on Twitter and such, they talk about one study. There is one, there are 33, 34 human studies. The biggest problem is the, uh, and I hate to say this, but the anti-vaxxers. Those who are, and you see it all the time, and any time I have a Twitter feed and I discuss this, they, they want to hijack the conversation. And I'm not saying vaccines are perfect. I am a proponent of them, and I was vaccinated for COVID and got the boosters. I'm not saying that they're perfect. But at the same point, though, there's never been any peer-reviewed medical research out there. There's no literature out there that suggests that there is any causal link between um, any of the vaccinations and autism. And that's been debunked. That's been discredited. Wakefield was, I mean, he's he's an embarrassment to the profession. We all know this. 
but I, I believe that has all you know that created a stigma, if you will, uh, of of those who are trying to come out with any other explanations for autism besides genetic. Absolutely, and it's impacted the funding. I believe it's been very difficult to get funding to research in any environmental factors. And there are a lot of studies that do say it's highly genetic. These disorders are highly genetic. However, we know there are environmental triggers such as valproate, which is an uh, anti-epileptic drug, that we've known that for a long time, that that's a trigger for autism. If you believe that any of this prevalence increase is real and not just better diagnosis and more awareness, there has to be some environmental factors involved. Genetics don't change that fast. Can you explain maybe the concept of a trigger there when you were saying, hey, this is genetic and that may be a trigger? What, what, what's that whole concept there? I'm not an expert in this area, but I think people may have a genetic dis, a genetic predisposition. Um, you may have had family members that tended to be have similar type behaviors. So you have a predisposition, and then all you need is an increased level of oxidative stress that's brought on by acetaminophen to trigger it in your in a particular individual. I don't know the exact me mechanisms. There are other ones that the people are proposing. And we know acetaminophen is an endocrine disruptor, so we know it's, it's doing things to hormones. But we know, it's quite obvious, that not every person who takes acetaminophen is getting, having a, who takes acetaminophen during pregnancy is having a child with autism or ADHD. It's, it's just like smoking and, and lung cancer. Not everybody who gets exposed has, gets the disease, right? So there's got to be some other pieces, other factors at play, right? So I think perhaps it's genetics, most likely that's a piece of the puzzle. It may be timing of exposure, it may be the length of exposure, but there are a lot of factors. It's not, so I think there, we are learning more and more about epigenetics, which is the interaction of genes and the environment. And, and most, most diseases we're finding really have an environmental component. And that's why I try to explain it. You know, when we get calls from uh, women or even their husbands asking about this lawsuit, they're, they're asking me, did I cause my child's autism? I'm trying to explain to them, this is not the cause. Okay. It's not the, the most likely cause genetics, but it is a possible, we believe it is a cause. It's a possible cause, but it's, it's a factor to be considered in the totality of circumstances, but it's not the cause. And I think uh, some individuals have trouble grasping that concept. You know, I kind of think, you know, it, it increases the risk of it, and it may be the cause in certain people, but to say that it is a cause in all people, I think, is where you get the, the, the long. But I think it definitely shows that in some people, the acetaminophen is the cause. I think that's correct. I like to bring people back to smoking and lung cancer because people understand that. Not everyone who gets lung cancer was a smoker, and not every smoker gets lung cancer. It's the same kind of thing. There are other causes of autism, and we know some of them. We have some clues. We, we know some things like pesticides can be, could be a factor. Air pollution has been repeatedly found as a factor. So there are other causes out there. But I think acetaminophen is an important cause because so many women use it. 65% of, of American women will take acetaminophen during their pregnancies, 50% in the rest of the world. So it's an exposure, a direct, directly ingested you know, exposure 
And the other thing to remember is it's easy to take too much of this drug. It's in 600, 600 different medications. So you're, if you're taking a cold medicine and you decide to take acetaminophen, you're getting too much. The therapeutic index is fairly narrow. It's the number one cause of acute liver failure because of its toxicity. So it's not a benign substance, but it has a reputation that it is. And I think that's part of the education is this is not a benign substance. Understood. How do you think the science is going to be attacked by the defense? I think on genetics and I think on indication for use, they're going to go and say that it was really the fever. The reason the woman took the acetaminophen, that's the cause. I think those are the two major reasons it's being attacked. And also the other issue with, with autism and ADHD is it isn't like you can get a blood test and diagnose it. It's reliant on, we have scales to measure behavior. We have doctor's diagnoses, but it's not a hard and fast diagnosis. So that's another place they can, you know, so they, they can attack you on exposure. <laughs> we didn't measure that well. They can attack you on the outcome isn't measured as well as in some other studies, and then the confounding factors and the biases. Those are the things. I think the animal studies are particularly important, and that's been totally ignored by the American College of OBG, you know, of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the FDA. The fact that they're all saying the same thing, to me, is, is a strong indicator that the epidemiology is correct. Understood. Because again, the confounding factors don't relate to animals. Yeah, I want to ask you about something you said in the beginning that some people who are listening may either find incredible or something that they just didn't really have the concept. Because I looked into this years ago. We get a lot of stuff in our groundwater in really small, measurable concentrations. So you mentioned something like everyone gets exposure to acetaminophen because it's in the groundwater. Explain that a little bit. Like what kind of, con we're not talking like high concentration, we're talking like parts per billions or something like this, aren't we? Yeah, I'm not an expert on this either, but I, I know that David Christensen did a study and they were they were shocked when they first found that everybody in, in his Danish cohort was exposed. It is very low concentrations. But, you know, Matt said specifically that the, the Johns Hopkins study on cord blood didn't have a control group. And I, I think that's one of the criticisms, but it's not exactly because I just don't think that the people who lodge that criticism understand that everybody has this low level. You, you've seen the studies that newborn babies have 200 chemicals in their, in their blood when they're born. People, people are exposed to low levels, very low levels of chemicals, and it can be detected when you're doing these type studies. And when you've got sensitive measuring devices, I've looked into this. It's amazing the different stuff they found in groundwater, tap water in different places, including narcotic drugs, things like that, that you'll find at these ultra, ultra low levels. Right. Um, and, and I was shocked. So it's just a concept I wanted you to get into a little bit more because, you know, some people may listen to this beginning and go, wait, acetaminophens in the groundwater? This lady's crazy. How does that happen? Well, we're learning more about forever chemicals and then, you know, PFOS and PFOS. And those are just from firefighting foam, you know, fire retardant chemicals that are now getting into the aquifer in the water base. This is being found in, you can't get rid of the chemicals, one, and it's getting to the aquifer and we're drinking it. I mean, the good news about acetaminophen is that it has a short half-life. It's not like PFAS. It's going to be for around forever. Yeah. But 
but we're constantly bad, bad analogy. I apologize. No, no, it's it's fine. But we're constantly using it. The fire foam they pretty much stopped using, and it's it's still a problem. About 150 million Americans will take a pain reliever each week. And so some of it's absorbed into their bodies, but some of it is excreted through their urine, goes into our, our sewer systems. Some places are, you know, treat and can manage to remove it from the groundwater, but there's still low levels in the groundwater. That's why you're seeing it even in, in people who, who say they're not exposed in, in that Hopkins study, they still had a very low level in the cord blood. We've got, that's a controversial program we've got here in our area, okay? The people who are against it call it toilet to tap, okay? They, you know, they don't, because they don't like it, but it is. There's a way that people can go retreat and dilute excrement, wastewater, kind of the gray wastewater, and put it back into use in areas where you've got limited freshwater resources. It's an accepted method of getting water back to use, and sometimes it may be reclaimed, sometimes it may be retreated. But all these things eventually make it back down into our groundwater in some minuscule, minuscule amounts. I doubt that these, but then again, you know, we don't, we know, we don't know. Are these exposures all additive? I mean, I, do they interact? We have a lot to learn. We don't know. So could, could these endocrine disrupting chemicals are interesting in that low levels have effects, which was, you know, a, a real challenge to conventional toxicology was that low levels can have adverse effects. So we don't know. We, we have a lot to learn. I mean, we're going to wrap up in a second. But I want to ask you about, you mentioned David Christensen, uh, the researcher who's your colleague and friend. Are any of his studies speaking to these topics, some of these confounding factors, or what is his uh, latest research about specifically regarding the link between acetaminophen uh, and autism? His research is um, using animals. So confounding is not the issue with his work. I think he's going to try and replicate some of the prior studies. He may be looking at some interaction with other chemicals. I haven't seen exactly what he's doing, but his work has primarily focused on the reproductive issues involved with taking acetaminophen. And that, that research has actually been going on longer. There's, there's male congenital malformations that are associated with using acetaminophen during pregnancy. And he has done a lot of the animal models and worked on the mechanisms, which seem to be depletion of testosterone, which also my other colleague, Shauna Swan, has been a, done a, a lot of work on testosterone reduction and has pu published a book on sperm count, sperm count decline across the, the world, which these are all seem to be related to endocrine disrupting chemicals. So... David is just shifting over to looking at the neurodevelopmental side because that seems to be where most people are focused at the moment. Okay. Well, we greatly appreciate your time. You're a wealth of knowledge. And I know that this is a body of science that continues to evolve. It's fluid. And we're probably going to have you on as a guest in the future as this lawsuit continues to develop and move forward. And I look forward to reading uh, David Christensen's new studies when they're published and seeing if you know of any other studies that are coming out or anything that comes to you know, light. Just obviously let me know. We'll certainly do that. I appreciate you, Anne. Yeah, we really appreciate you taking time to be on here. It's been very informative. Well, I, I hope I gave you some insight, and I appreciate you listening. You know, this has been Always. this has been a, a a long passion of been a passion of mine for a long time, and I'm so glad that we're finally getting 
we're informing pregnant women so they know at least so they can make informed decisions and, and choose wisely with their use of medications during pregnancy. And hopefully over time at the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, uh, he's the warning. Or there's enough of a body of science that will uh, change their opinion to at least realize that this is a, a potential cause and that the, they should at least there's a they should at least warn pregnant women about regular use of acetaminophen. Yes, from your lips to their ears. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> we really appreciate it. Well, that wraps up another episode of uh, David V. Goliath. Uh, Stan, anything else you want to add? No, no. I think we've got everything here. Well, appreciate your time and have a great day. You too. Thank you so much. This episode of David versus Goliath is over, but your journey is just getting started. To share your story with us, visit dolmanlaw.com. That's D-O-L-M-A-N-Law.com or call 866-965-6242. The insights and views presented in David vs. Goliath are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. The information presented is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney, nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. Any case result information provided on any portion of this podcast should not be understood as a promise of any particular result in a future case. Dolman Law Group. Big firm results. Small firm personal attention.